Okay. So of course, of course, questions are welcome here, but we're going to continue on this uh, this topic, talking about Shabbos. What we had just learned in the Sederishal Shabbos is the the way that he uniquely explains the Gemara. The Gemara says, "Ilmale Shamru Yisrael Nigalin." If Klal Yisrael were to keep two Shabbosos, then right away we would have a geula. And he explains what that means is that if you keep one Shabbos and you're able to keep that Shabbos throughout the whole week, and then you're able to enter to the second Shabbos and you bridge the two Shabbosos between the two of them with the week, and you're not Mechal Shabbos during the week, Miyad Nigalin, they'll have a geula Gula will come right away. And so what he says is that in some way, we need to draw from one Shabbos into the week. And we need to not be broken throughout the week and destroy whatever we draw we drew from Shabbos. And we need to make sure that we don't break ourselves during the week so that we can prepare in a healthy way for Shabbos. So right away, we see from this, from this the, uh, the, inter, the interconnection, the interconnectivity between Shabbos and Chol. It's not simply the flow of the week, but every day of the week is connected to Shabbos, and Shabbos is connected to every day of the week. And so we left off last week with the proposition that what we take from Shabbos into the six days of the week is Menucha. We take Menucha with us. Ba'at Shabbos, Ba' Menucha. When Shabbos comes, we have Menucha. And so what we're looking to do is we're looking to draw from Shabbos, the Menucha of Shabbos into the six days of the week. So let's talk about that. We're not going to use the text this, this year. We're going to kind of stop here. And we're going to look at what the Pasuk says. It's very simple. The Pasuk says, Bayanach on the seventh day Hashem rested. It also says that um, it also uses the, the Lashon of Shabbos. But we're going to talk about Hashem resting. And the question we asked last week is, if Hashem doesn't work, then what's he resting from? Already, if you read the words of the Pasuk, Vayanach Bayam means that Hashem actively rests. It's not simply that Hashem said to the world, rest, but Hashem himself actually rested. And we ask the question, what does that mean? If Hashem isn't a person, and Hashem doesn't do things, Hashem's not engaged in, in, in expressing uh, effort into the world. So what does it mean that he rested? That's, that's the morale's question. That's many, many, many people ask that question. So we're going to try to explain what Menucha is. And hopefully be able to, if I remember, to go back to answer that question. What does it mean that Hashem himself, that Hashem himself rested? What does that even mean for Hashem? In order to explain Menucha, which simply means to rest, 
but it doesn't just mean to rest, it means to be at peace. So we have to talk about, of course, psychological function. We have to talk about the way that we, as human beings, function in the world, the way that we exist in the world, and try to understand the function of Menucha. Where does Menucha come from? What's the definition? What does it mean? And what does it mean that it's it Ba Shabbos Ba Menucha? So we're going to take a detour. And we're going to go back to basic human development. For those that learned Psych, psych 101, some of this might, might, uh, you might remember. Some of it I might get wrong. But we'll put it all together. We all know the Medrash. The Medrash says that when a baby is being formed in its mother's stomach, that the baby is learning with a malach, learns all of Torah. And it comes time for the baby to be born. And right as the baby's being born, the malach hits the baby on the, up, on the upper lip, and the baby forgets everything, and now the baby has to relearn. So there's a, there's a lot of drushes around that. There's a, lot, there's a lot to say about that, which, by the way, just, just to throw it out there, in other spiritual cultures, the same idea is found. It's not an idea that's found uniquely by, by, uh, by Jews, but it's, nevertheless, we have it in our Torah, and so we, we have to look at it and contend with it and understand it. So we're not going to get into the idea that all of Torah that a person learns, all that we learn really about life when we're here, is an echo of what we learned when we were in our mother's bellies. In other words, all learning that we do today is really memory. We're, not, we're never learning anything new. Everything that we learn is tinkering around somewhere in our brain, somewhere in our deep, deep unconscious, or Jung would say in, in our collective unconscious. We have it buried in there, and so learning is actually recall. So that's a whole drusha in and of itself, but we'll put that on the side. The moment a baby is born, the baby is in a state of being forgotten. The baby forgets everything. The baby's lost everything. A baby is formed in Shemayim underneath the Kisya Coven. And what that means is, is that his entire or her entire existence is that it's an Ashama up in Shemayim. It's exploding with potential, and it exists right at the feet of God. And so in order to be born on planet Earth, the baby has to experience death in heaven. All birth requires previous death, except the creation of the world. The creation of the world, Hashem created something from nothing, which even there, some of the, some of the Svarim write a language of Hashem had to make nothing die in order to create something. Okay, but even that is a, you know, it's a, it's a brain twister. Be that as it may, when a baby is born, a baby is in a, in a complete state of not knowing. What we, would, what we all would say, the baby is completely vulnerable. Baby doesn't know anything. Baby can't do anything. 
baby is completely filled with the fear of having just died in Shemayim, of having just lost all the things that, that he or she has learned in the mother's belly, and is really at the mercy of complete and utter uncertainty, complete and utter fear, the uncertainty and the fear of not being able to do anything, not being able to know anything. And this is true in modern, even, even in, in modern day times. If an infant is born, chas and there's, there's no parent there to care for it, then the baby will fail to thrive. And that leads in, into a rebirth into heaven. You're following what I'm saying. You're, that leads to death, right? That means that the earliest function of a baby on planet Earth in the state of vulnerability is trust. It's the first, the first experience we have on planet Earth is trust. We experience vulnerability, and somewhere, somehow, we have the capacity to trust that some other organism on planet Earth is going to take care of us. If we didn't have that trust, we would simply implode underneath the fear. We would cease to exist. The fear would be too great, and we don't have any ego. We don't have any mind. We don't have any capacity to, to hold on, and we would, we would simply die. So a baby is born with vulnerability and the trust that somewhere, somehow, something will take care of it. Where does it get that trust from? It gets that trust from having been in Shemayim. It, it experienced care in Shemayim. It experienced living at the feet of Hashem. It somehow, the baby knows somehow in its deep-rooted, primitive brain and mind and heart that there's such a thing as caring. And so when it's born into planet Earth, it's somehow, we somehow all intuitively know that somehow, somewhere, somebody's going to take care of us. And of course, Chas Shalom. If that doesn't happen, it leads to where it leads to. The moment the baby trusts, the baby then starts to learn. What is it? What do we all start to learn? It's the first thing that we learn. The first thing we learn is that there's another human being on the planet that's going to caress our cheeks, that's going to hold our bodies, is going to, is going to hold us skin to skin. And eventually we start to learn that whenever we cry, that same mother or that same father is going to come and respond. So even though the baby's not conscious, but it's a simple act of repetition, the baby starts to learn. I cry, mommy comes. I'm hungry, I cry, mommy comes. I'm hungry, I cry, mommy comes. I have a dirty diaper, I'm uncomfortable, I cry, mommy comes. Until eventually, the child starts to take from that chachma, that awareness of reality, and starts to spread that reality to other situations. So, for example, I'm not hungry, I'm not uncomfortable, but I cry and mommy comes. So now suddenly, as a very Pavlovian way, my crying equals mommy coming. And that's what starts to happen as the child starts to develop 
The baby cries just because he wants mommy to come or she wants mommy to come. And that's where we start to see the capacity that we have to extend our knowledge from one point to something else. And we start to make assumptions about reality. And I'm using that word specifically. Learning is not just learning things. It's, right, we, we, we walked through this once, the difference between Chachma and Bina, Chachma, Bina, and Das. Chachma is the ability to know something. Bina is the ability to understand the implications of what we know. And Das is the ability to, to, to extend that application into reality. So Bina is the ability to understand what we know, and Das is the ability to, to activate and use that knowledge. We also start to learn that we have the capacity to learn. We start to learn that it's not just this Pavlovian kind of thing, but that there's things that we start to learn about reality. And that we can take the, the knowledge that we have in situation number one, extend it to situation number two, even though we never learned situation number two. But because we've learned that we have the capacity to learn, we can extend that to other areas of our lives. And then we start to learn things like hard surfaces can support us. Soft surfaces cannot support us. Cardboard is not something that tastes good. Sugar does. We start to learn all of these kinds of things. And we start to make assumptions about reality. Assumptions about reality, I'm using that word specifically, because what I want to talk about today is, again, we're talking about Manucha. I want to talk about how busyness works and the difference between busyness and stress. And in order to do that, we have to understand how we learn things. And you'll, you'll, you'll understand that in a minute. So assumptions are our ability to take the things that we learn with our intellect and connect the things that we learn with our intellect to make guesses to other things. We can extrapolate information. What's an assumption? An assumption is an educated guess about reality that allows us to function in the world. That's what an assumption is. I assume that right now outside my house, there's no army tank. It's an assumption I have. It's not a conscious assumption. I didn't have it until the thought formulated into my mouth. But I assume also that um, I will probably go into bed and sleep tonight. I assume millions of things about reality and my ability to assume is something that I need in order for me to live. I can't think and rethink every single thing every time I encounter it to see whether or not I know it. I need the capacity to assume. People that cannot trust their ability to learn and their ability to extend their knowledge beyond fact suffer from something like obsessive compulsive disorder because they need to continuously check wait wait is that really true did i really lock the door did i really lock the door i don't know did i really lock the door the ability to assume 
is the ability to navigate that which is unknown, that which is that we are uncertain about, using my intellect and trusting my intellect. So again, assumptions are things about reality that we don't know for sure, but we extend our intellect and what we know about the world, we extend that intellect into the unknown, and we're able to function that way. I assume the store will have eggs when I need eggs. I assume that the refrigerator is gonna keep things cold. I assume that my car will start in the morning. I assume that it takes me 30 minutes to get to my office, so I don't need to leave before 35 minutes before I need to be there. Assumptions, these are basic assumptions we make in life. And that's a good thing. That's part of learning. It's one of, it's one of the earliest things that we, that we as children, when we're children, it's one of the first parts of development. Now, besides assumptions, or I should say, if you extend assumptions beyond assumptions, we come up with beliefs. Now, what's the difference between an assumption and a belief? An assumption, we are all aware that we don't know. And that's the, that is the definition of an assumption. It's an educated guess that we make. Assumptions are things we don't know. A belief is when we take that which we don't know, but we hold on to it with certainty as if we do know. So for example, I assume that my car will start. I turn my car on and it doesn't start. So now my assumption changes. With all assumptions that we have in life, we are simply aware that we're taking a guess. And when there's data that comes in that shows us that we didn't get it right, we reevaluate the assumption and we're fine. Beliefs don't work that way. If I believe that we're going to make it more complicated, if I believe that I need to be a part of a certain chevra, I need to be a part of a certain group in order for me to be happy, and then someone comes along and says, hey, you know, that's an assumption you have about happiness. It's a wrong assumption. That assumption doesn't work. I'm going to tell them jump in a lake. Because beliefs are things that we hold on to with the veracity and the strength of a fact. So when we talk about beliefs, if you think about you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, where we talk about beliefs that you hold in the world, a belief is something that you don't know. You can't know. That's why it's a belief. If you did know, then it would be called knowledge. A belief is something that we hold on to that we don't know, but using our intellect, we believe it to be true. We hold on to it with the emotional intensity as if it's a fact, and we live our lives accordingly. To change a belief is much, much harder than to change an assumption. Assumptions we're very flexible with. By nature, that's what an assumption is. I assume that you're nice. I assume that you're a nice person. If you treat me not nicely, 
then I assume you're not a nice person. It's very comfortable to kind of uh, switch and change my assumptions. But if I believe that you're my friend and I believe that you're a nice person and then you hurt me, then suddenly things are very different. I'm going to have a much harder time dealing with that. Okay, that's the distinction between assumptions and beliefs. But if we keep going with this, we need to move into talking about expectations. Because expectations are always based on beliefs. Now, expectations are even harder to think about. Expectations are my belief that the way that I see the world is not just true, but it has to be true. So, for example, an assumption would be, I assume you're a nice person. You do something to the contrary, and that breaks my assumption and finished. I believe you're my friend. You do something to hurt me. Now I don't really know what to do. I, I'm not going to let go of the belief that you're my friend automatically. I don't assume you're my friend. I believe you're my friend. But when I expect that you're my friend, I'm not just extending my intellect into the unknown. I'm extending my need for reality to go the way that I need reality to go. It's stronger than a belief. A belief is something I hold to be true. An expectation has within it the very strong need to make sure that life goes the way that I want it to go. That's an expectation. And what flows from expectation is demand. If I expect something to happen, then I act on that expectation and I demand that my expectations are actualized. That's what a demand is. A demand is my taking my expectation and expressing it into the world. So we have four things here. We have assumptions, beliefs, expectations, and demands. Most of us spend our life learning about responsibilities. And by the time we make it into adulthood, our lives are filled with things that are required of us, things that are expected of us, things that are demanded of us. And what that does is it creates structure, but much more than structure, it creates pressure. And so we have to talk about structure and pressure for a moment. Structure is very healthy for us. Pressure is not very healthy for us. If you think about a deadline that you have, you can ask yourself the question, are deadlines for me, are deadlines pressures or are they structure? What's the, what's the major difference? Structures are helpful. Pressures make us stressed. 
That's the distinction. So if I feel that deadlines are helpful to me, then what that means is that my deadlines are structures. If, one second, hang on, I'm sorry. I, I see that my, my video screen is really, is really uh, not very smooth. I'm sorry about that. I hope that, we're, I hope that my, you hear me, the audio is at least okay. Okay, good. If deadlines are good, they make me feel good, that means that they're structure. If they make me feel not good, if they threaten me and I become fearful of them, then that means that deadlines are pressure. So you've heard this line from me before. I know this is very technical, but just bear with me for a few minutes because we just need to set these terms out. So this is a sign that's hanging in my in in my office, and it's the four. It's the it's the best sentence I think ever. The sign. It's a it's a um, a quote from Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman said, "Be curious, not judgmental." What's the difference between curiosity and being judgmental? So now we're going to go back to talking about assumptions, beliefs, expectations, and demands. The higher I am up on the totem pole, from assumptions to beliefs to expectations and demands, the more that I experience reality filtered through the way that I want to see the world. The stronger my beliefs about reality are, the more that I experience life only through the lens of my beliefs. The more, the more I experience things based on assumptions, the more I'm open to experience life openly. But the stronger my beliefs about things, the more I'm going to filter reality through my beliefs. The more I expect in reality, the more I'm going to experience the world through the lens of my expectations. So for example, if somebody says, did you have a good day? And the response is, yes, I had a very successful day. So then you have to ask the question, did you assume and did you, I'm sorry, did you expect of yourself that you needed to have a successful day? And then you did have a successful day. And the reason why you enjoyed your day is because you fulfilled your expectation. Or you enjoy success, and you had success, and therefore you had a good day. Now, it might feel like I'm splitting hairs for a moment, but let's, let's really try to delve into this to understand this. To be judgmental of something means to come at life with an agenda. When I, when I experience anything that happens in my life, with some kind of belief about how life should be, or some kind of expectation or demand of how life should be, then I am not interacting with the data that I get. I'm not interacting with the experience that I get. I'm interacting instead with the projection of my beliefs onto reality. I'm 
experiencing life with the projections of my expectations of how things should be. If I had a bad day at work and somebody asks me, how was your day? And I say, wow, that was a terrible day. Are you saying it was a terrible day because you had a hard day? Are you saying it's a terrible day because you expected your day to be something and it wasn't? If somebody does something nice for me, do I appreciate the nice thing that they did? Or do I appreciate the fact that I expect people to be nice to me? When I do not know how to manage my beliefs and expectations in life, when I don't know how to manage my demands from the world of how my life should be, then everything that I do in life and everything that I experience in life is filtered through my beliefs and my expectations of how life should be. And then what happens is we miss out on the ability to actually connect to life as it is. If I receive a gift from someone, do I appreciate the gift because somebody fulfilled my expectation of getting attention and receiving gifts? Or do I appreciate the gift that they gave me? How flexible am I in letting go of my beliefs of reality in order to live from a place of vulnerability? If bad things happen to me, do I experience the bad things as a challenge to my intellect and my ego that needs life to run a certain way? Or do I have the vulnerability and the freedom to experience the bad thing as it is? Is the frustrations I have in life built on the fact that I expected life to work a certain way and it didn't? Or do I get frustrated by things that are frustrating? The more that we have expectations of ourselves that are rooted in beliefs about how life should be, that are rooted in my intellectual knowledge of life and my emotional need <clears throat> to feel that life runs the way I need it to run, the more I experience that, the more narrow my life becomes, the more judgmental I become, the more I interact in the with the world from a place of agenda, and the, le the, the, excuse me, the, the less of a chance that I have to interact with the world as it is, because I'm too busy interacting with the world in the way that I expect it to be. Is this point clear? So what is the difference between busyness and stress? The difference between busyness and stress is that busyness means I'm doing something. My mind is occupied, my brain is occupied, 
my hands are occupied, I'm functioning in something, and I'm doing something. That's what it means to be busy. I could be busy for 14 hours a day. That's fine. The Pasuk says in Mishlei, Adam l'amal yulad, or yuvaleid. A man was created to work, 100%, to be as productive and creative as possible, 100%. But in my productivity, am I coming at it from the angle of motivation, which says to me, I want to engage in the world. I want to do things in the world. I want to express things in the world. I see responsibilities as opportunities to express. I see the pressures of deadlines as being structure. Or do I need to experience all of the busyness in my life through the lens of my own ego, through the lens of expectation? So that when I'm doing what I'm doing, I'm not judging it based on the merits of what I accomplished. I'm judging it based on the merits of what I deem to be success. Because I have my expectations, I have my beliefs of how things should be. All stress that exists in the world comes from expectation. All stress that exists in the world comes from a belief that life has to run the way that I say life has to run. The Torah doesn't, doesn't have a problem with people being busy. It's a good thing to be busy. It's a good thing to be productive. But where we get into trouble is when the expectation and the pressure and the demand that life has to work out a certain way, even religiously. I mean, this is, this is we, we find this, this is perhaps in a certain way, the biggest struggle is when it comes to things in, in a religious function. If I think that Hashem expects and demands of me, and it adds stress to my life, then I'm not hearing what Hashem wants from me. What Hashem wants for me creates opportunity for me. It creates structure for me. It gives me guidance in life. It gives me the capacity to express myself. It gives me the capacity to do for Him. If it creates stress, then that means somewhere, somehow, I'm missing what God is asking of me. Stress comes from the world of ego. It comes from the world of I need to learn. I need to trust my ability to learn. I need to trust my intellect enough to, to say to me, this is how life should be. My ego says, I must accomplish this way. I must do this much. I must be this kind of person. I must reach this status. I must do this. And it has an agenda. And all of that agenda becomes a veil on top of my life, so that I'm interpreting everything in my life through the lens of that veil, that's stress. That's expectation. That's belief. But that's not coming from God. That's coming from ego. And this is where it gets really, really challenging to make a distinction 
Gemara says that there were that there was a discussion between two Amoraim. One was blind and one wasn't blind. And the discussion had to do with both of them were Makayim the Tyra. Both of them both of them were living <clears throat> very, very heightened levels of Jewish performance. And the question became the blind man did not have the commandments. There were many commandments that he was not commanded to because he's he's blind, he's fatter from. So who's greater? The person who's commanded to follow Hashem's will and he does it, or a person who's not commanded to fill, fulfill Hashem's will and he does it anyway. So you might think that if Hashem doesn't command me, but I still fulfill what he wants, that that's a high madrega. I do all these things out of the passion and the love of my heart. That's amazing. That's beautiful. That's great. Sure. But the Gemara says, It is greater for a person to do something because they're commanded. That's greater than the person who's not commanded. Why? It's not because it's it, it, people, I think, I, I, I think people get this wrong. What does it mean to be a Matsuva Va'isa? What does it mean that Hashem commands me to do it and I do it? It means that I have figured out how to use the benefits of my intellect without the stress of my ego, without the expectations of my ego. I am able to fulfill Hashem's will to act in this world without feeling the stress and the pressure that comes from expectations and ego. The chidush of a person being on a high madrega because they can fulfill Torah mitzvahs is because I have, when I have the capacity to be vulnerable and open and not be plagued by the filtering of judgment and expectation, and I could still be Mekayim what Hashem wants for me, that's the ultimate in human perfection. The ultimate in human perfection is the capacity to fulfill my responsibilities and still remain vulnerable. Because everything that we have in our intellect, everything we're able to do with our intellect, everything we can conjure up with our intellect, we run the risk of having our egos attached to it. Because the very first thing we do as, as human beings is we learn and we learn to trust our learning. And our learning all takes place in our intellect. And of course, our learning is one of the, it's, it's the, it's a fundamental part of our lives. But when that trust in my intellect means that I start to make assumptions that turn into beliefs about reality, and I need to hold on to those beliefs with the surefire strength that the, those beliefs are facts, and I start to interpret all the things around me through the lens of those beliefs, and then I expect reality to work based on those beliefs and based on my ego. And it could even very well be innocently. I expect life to work a certain way. It could be a very, a very innocent expectation. Those of us that have been in therapy, or those of us that are therapists can tell you, can say, it could take years before you get to, to know what your expectations of reality are. But people that carry a tremendous amount of angst, 
people that, that carry a tremendous amount of resentment and that carry a tremendous amount of pain, if you, if you know how to do it without, without being judgmental, that means without having your own expectations, you can trace it back to an expectation somewhere. You can trace it back to the inability for me to accept reality the way it is because my expectations of a reality should be cloud everything I see in this, in this life. So when Walt Whitman said, be curious and not judgmental, we just deconstructed that whole sentence. What he meant to say is, to be judgmental means I don't ever see reality. What I see is reality filtered through my own beliefs about myself, about the world, about God, about how things should be. I filter the world through my expectations of how things should be. I've seen this in, in relationships many, many times. And if you think about it in your own lives, it's a, it's, a delicate, it's a delicate question. How many times do I not appreciate something in somebody because I'm too busy clouded by my expectations of them to appreciate that which they are, that which they can give me or that which they, that which they do in life? I have a, I have a friend who... who is a little bit of a mashpia. He's he teaches a lot of Torah, and his big thing, his big Indian. Every every you know every person has their like Indian in life. His big thing is Hakar Satayv. Everybody has to be Makar Tayv, Makar Tayv, Makar Tayv. And a little bit like I, I I struggled with like what like I don't understand Indian. The Indian of Hakar Satayv means I am not played by my expectations. You can never appreciate something. If you're filtered with your expectations, expectations mean I don't appreciate the apple. I expect the apple. And so that which I'm enjoying when I'm eating the apple is the fulfillment of my expectation, not the enjoyment of the apple. I shared with you this once. This came from, from uh, Rav Dov Cook. He's, the, he's a, a nephew of, of Rav Cook. <laughs> There's a story they say about a, a, a Rebbe and a Talmud, a Rebbe and a Chassid, whatever, whatever, whichever persuasion you want. That the Rebbe said to the Chassid, what's the difference between you and I? I make a bracha and eat an apple, and you make a bracha and eat an apple. What's the difference? We both make brachas, we both eat apples. So what's the difference? The difference is, is that the Rebbe said, you, Chassid, make a bracha in order to give you permission to eat an apple. I, Rebbe, eat the apple in order to have permission to make a bracha. So that's an old story. The Rebdov Cook, I saw, I saw him I saw once in a sefer, he says, both of them are not the Shleimus Adam. Both the Rebbe and the Chassid are not the Shleimus Adam. You want to know what it means to be a Tzadik Gomer? You know what it means to be, to have Shleimus? To have Shleimus means... I eat the apple to eat the apple, and I make a bracha to make the bracha. That I have the capacity to enjoy completely, fully experience the smell of an apple, the taste of an apple, the way it goes down into my, into my belly, the way it fills me up, the way it gives me enjoyment. I can experience that fully, and I can also experience the beauty of saying a, a, a bayer prayer eights on it. That it all fits together. How does it fit together? 
The only way it fits together is if I let go of expectation. If I expect the apple to be good, I can never appreciate the apple fully. And so what Rav Cook was saying is, you want to know what the greatest madrega in life is? Learn how to appreciate everything. And the only way you can appreciate everything is through vulnerability. That's Chelek Aleph. All of that is a hakdama to go backwards to that moment that a baby is born. Because the moment the baby is born, the baby is filled with vulnerability. And in that moment, the baby knows one thing. It knows one thing. It knows that it has the capacity to trust. What is the Mida in all the things we just discussed? The intellect is something we all know. Modern psychology, I mean, now, now recently, with the, people have definitely been talking about vulnerability. Renee Brown talks about vulnerability. John S. Webb talks about vulnerability. Others talk about vulnerability in different ways. What gives me the capacity to be vulnerable? We, we, we are so enamored by intellect. We are so enamored by brains. We are so enamored by, by the drive of people who are successful. We are so, um, we are so good to stress. Like stress is our best friend. We love stress. We worship stress. I mean, that's what we do in our lives, which essentially means we worship the pressures of our ego. We worship that. We love it when there's a burn of a deadline. We procrastinate until those last two days and we have to work our, our tail off in order to get to the bottom line, and we love it. And when we, get, when, we, when we barely send that application or that paper in 11.59 when the deadline's at 12, that feeling of release is one of the, is one of the greatest feelings in, in the world. But all of that procrastination and all of that is not an enjoyment of accomplishment. It's all an enjoyment of expectation. It's all an enjoyment of relieving stress. It's not an enjoyment of motivation, effort, and success. What gives me the capacity within myself to let go of belief, to let go of expectation, and land back in the curious, the curiosity of Walt Whitman, the openness of vulnerability? What gives me the ability to do that? It's called faith. That's what faith is. Faith is the ability to let go. It doesn't mean to not have goals. It doesn't mean to not be motivated. It doesn't mean to not work. It doesn't mean to not try to get to the goal. It doesn't mean to not care about success. It doesn't mean any of those things. Faith means I could let go of the demands and the belief that my life has to work the way that I believe my life has to work. Faith means I can even believe within Hashem's expectations of me that Hashem doesn't expect of me. He requests of me. He wants me. He demands of me from an angle of wanting to give me the capacity to grow myself. Of course we believe in punishment. 
I'm not, this is not, this, nothing that I say is, is to be connected, Chazal. It's a very nuanced point. The point is that, of course, I'm a Metzuvah. Of course, Hashem commands me. Of course, Hashem demands of me. But what is the nature of that commandment? What is the nature of that expectation? Is it expectation that's coming from an agenda, that God has an agenda with me? He's expecting something of me? Or is it coming from a gentle place of vulnerability? When Hashem says to me, do something, is Hashem coming to me with the expectation and the harshness that we know that what the voice sounds like of judgmentalism? Or is Hashem coming to me from the angle that says, please do this? And of course, if you don't do this, you're still with me, 100% connected. Of course, if you, do, if you don't do this, you don't destroy the value of who you are. But I still need you to do it. So even in my relationship with God, even in every single mitzvah that Hashem has me do, there's an element of amuna. There's an element of faith. And the faith that we have is the faith that is supposed to bring us to a place of vulnerability and let go of expectations. That's why gaiva is the worst midah from all the midas. Because gaiva is ego. And ego only results in stress. That's all it ends up in. It ends up in me filtering the world and not being able to see or appreciate anything in the world for what it is because I'm too busy believing and expecting and demanding and, and there's all kinds of assumptions I make about, about you and about me and how life should be and the needs that I have, etc. Faith is not, if you hear me very well, faith is not a religious concept. Faith is a psychological concept. Faith means I have the capacity to let go of my expectations. I have the capacity to let go of the way I'm trying to manage my life way harder than I should be. Because the harder I try to manage my life, the harder I expect of myself, the harder I expect of myself, the bigger mess I make of my life. Faith is the capacity to, to let go of expectation and fall into vulnerability. Naked as a newborn baby. To be completely vulnerable like a newborn baby. Religion, Yiddishkeit, asks the question, what do you have faith in? Right? What is the end result of your faith? But faith is not a religious concept. When we talk about Amunah, we have to recognize that there are, there's millions of pieces of Amunah. But when we talk about Amunah, what we, what we recognize is that Amunah is about letting go of my intellect, letting go of all the things that, that, that logically keep me safe, all the things that make me feel controlled, that make me feel like I'm in control of life. Letting go of all of that is the first step of Amunah. Recognizing that Hashem is taking care of all of it, that's the end result of Amuna. But Amuna starts with being able to let go. So now, now we go back to the beginning of the beginning of this whole of this whole little journey. What is the emotional reaction? to faith. If you want to know whether or not you have a Muna, 
what is the feeling you want to tap into and see if you have? The feeling that comes as a product of Amuna is Menucha Sanefesh. Menucha Sanefesh. Not, not a post-joint chill. Not, not a, a, good, a good, you know, high from whatever, whatever gets you high. Not from a good binging on potato chips at two o'clock in the morning, even though those are good things. But Menucha Sanefesh means that I have the capacity to be vulnerable and that I can embrace everything in my life as it is without the filtering of my expectations, without the filtering of my beliefs, without the judgmentalism, without the criticism, without the jealousy. I mean, everything in life that goes wrong for us goes back to the fact that we expect life to work a certain way and it doesn't work our way. Now this, it, this we, could, we could spend 30 weeks just talking about this one topic. I don't think, I don't, we're not doing it justice. This is really more of a hakadama to, to the point. But the point is that if you want to know what it means to be a Bala Muna, then you have to check in to see whether or not you have Menucha Sanefesh. Menucha Sanefesh from what? From expectation. The more I taste Menucha Sanefesh from expectation, that means I'm, I've been able to let go of my expectations of life and that the, the people around me might frustrate me, but they can't get me to resent them because resentment comes from expectation. I could look around and say, yeah, that guy has a nice car, but it doesn't end up in jealousy because jealousy is a result of expectation. I could say, I really, I really want to make a lot of money, but I don't need to be compelled and forced to and be put into situations where I might do things that are inappropriate and wrong to make money because all of greed comes from expectation. We can go on and on and on. Everything in my life comes from expectation. Everything that goes wrong in my life comes from expectation. Vulnerability is the ability to believe I'll be okay. I'm okay. Now, in life, it doesn't mean to say that any of us are ready to just let go of all of our expectations. That, that, that's not what any of this means. This is really just an arrow pointing in the direction. Where do we have to focus on in our lives? Sometimes we need things. And there's a difference between having a need and having an expectation. Sometimes in life we need to check out for a little bit because we need healing. That's for sure. I'm not denying any of that. So it comes Shabbos. Bayanach bayem hashvi'i. Hashem rested on the seventh day. And we said last week, that means that Hashem created the concept of Menucha. It means that Hashem spent the six days of the week building the intellect, building capability, building effort, building discipline, building success. He built the function of Chol. He built work. The six days of the week, Hashem was busy building work. And if left without Shabbos, our whole lives would be simply driven by the beliefs and the expectations and the demands and the stressors of, I have to work. I exp I'm expected to work. I have responsibilities. I have deadlines. I can't be nice to you because I am I, 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 rushing to finish a deadline. I can't, I, can't, uh, I can't enjoy anything because I'm too busy expecting to get things. So it came Shabbos and Hashem said, 
if the world's going to have six days of the week, then there has to be a day of letting go, not of the work, of the expectations. Shabbos is not a day that you rest from work. You can move. You can move a table all the way up from the from the you know from the bottom floor up to the third floor in your house. You're allowed to do work on Shabbos. The shot of all the lamentes malachas are that all of those lamentes malachas, and this is a whole. We'll get to this uh, uh, much later on, Hashem, about why the lamentes malachas, why those malachas. But the 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 advarim is that all those malachas are connected to the six days of the week. And all those malachas are, are, represent aspects of expectation, of stress, of belief, of hard work, of the intellect, of having a goal that, that is going to threaten me with expectations, etc. Hashem created Menucha. Hashem said to, said to us, with all the things that you do in the six days of the week, I want you to have the ability to surrender all of it. Not the work. I don't, I'm not asking you to surrender the work. There's no division between Koil and Shabbos that says that there can't be work on Shabbos. All of the food that you have on Shabbos is a result of all the work you did during the six days of the week. There's a connection. We bring all of the six days into the week into Shabbos. Of course we do. If, if not, then... We, then Whatever we had on Shabbos, you wouldn't be allowed to have hot food. You wouldn't be allowed to have cooked food. You, you can only eat raw vegetables on Shabbos because you wouldn't be allowed. You'd, you'd have to have a compartmentalized division between the Chol and Shabbos. It comes the six days of the week. It comes Shabbos and Hashem says, I want you to know that there's got to be a day where you tune back into Amuna. Amuna means your capacity to let go of demands of expectations, of all of your beliefs, of all of your intellect, and all the ways that you try so hard. And I want you to soak up the manucha of Shabbos. And then, this is the hardest, this is the hardest thing, this is the punchline of the whole, of the whole, of the whole structure of the week. Then I want you to take that manucha and go back into the six days of the week. To be mechal Shabbos during the week means I lose the amuna and I replace the amuna back with my beliefs about life. I replace the vulnerability with expectation. To be mechal Shabbos during the six days of the week mean I forget the manucha that comes along with faith and I get lost in the craziness of my own expectations. It means if 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 Yisrael could take Shabbos, the Manukha of Shabbos, and could bring the Manukha of Shabbos, the vulnerability, the openness, the faith of Shabbos into the six days of the week, and you could become the kind of person that learns how to surrender expectation while you're working hard, and that you're not pagan that, you don't break that, you can keep that amuna going. And you can keep that amuna going throughout the whole week so that now when you're coming closer to Shabbos, you bring a, a heightened level of amuna into the next Shabbos because now you've tasted amuna with the work. You didn't just rest from the work. You brought the rest into the work and you bring that into Shabbos. That's Ku'ula. That's the, that's the biggest test of all of our lives. Can you let go of your expectations and live from your soul?
Can you let go of expectations and live with vulnerability? If you could do that, then you got the trick of what all of this life is about. Ruchnius, Gashmius, shallowness, depth, Shemayim, Aretz, all of these things come together when a human being has the capacity to work with Menucha. So my bracha to all of us is that we should be Zaycha because it's not just the Geula of Mashiach, it's a Geula personally in our own lives. Because everything that haunts us in our lives, everything that keeps us in the gullets in our lives, can be boiled down to the fears that are associated with expectations, the fears that are associated with self-annihilation, the fears that we have, that somehow the beliefs we have of life are not, are not true. And the way that we hold so tightly to those beliefs without being able to be vulnerable enough to let them be challenged and changed. When a person has the fortitude, the ego strength, the empowerment to have faith enough to let go of their personal expectations, to let go of fear, to let go of judgmentalism. When a person has the capacity to do that, they can taste the freedom of Geula that's going to come with Mashiach. You could taste that in the six days of your week. Any human being that's ever experienced a freedom from their own jealousy, their own greed, their own lust, their own misery, can tell you that they've tasted something that's better than anything else in this world. And that's the taste of Mashiach. Because to die in heaven, to be born on earth, big loss. But to live on earth with the light of heaven, there's, there's, there's no greater place a person would want to be. To be able to make a bracha and appreciate the bracha and eat the apple and appreciate the apple, you, you made it. I mean, that's, that is a taste of Mashiach. That is what life will be like when Mashiach comes. And that, of course, is the whole theme of Hanukkah. Mir Hashem will get there also, maybe next week. The whole Indian of Hanukkah, of finding the light that's Badafki in the darkness. It's the rebirth and the death and the death and the rebirth and all of that stuff all combined. Which, for our intents and purposes, is the, is the ability to have Menucha in the midst of the hard work. To have emuna in the midst of the hishtadlas, to learn how to let go of my assumptions, my beliefs, my expectations, and demands of reality, to be free to live the way that I am, underneath all of it, for my neshama. So, with that, I wish us all a good Shabbos.